Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Is It Good News Yet? It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 16, 2020. The world has always been hungry for good news, but right now, I think we might be starving for it. We are exhausted by the onslaught of devastating headlines, one after another after another. The global pandemic, the sinking economy, the ailing planet, the catastrophic explosion in Beirut. I could go on and on and on. Some of us are traumatized by what we're seeing and hearing. Some of us have gone numb just to survive. Some of us have taken to doom scrolling continuously scrolling through bad news hour after hour and day after day, unable to stop or step back. And yet, as Christians, we are called to be bearers of good news. In every situation, no matter how terrible or seemingly hopeless, we are called to hold out the life-giving, death-defying, world-changing promise of the gospel. The promise that a good and loving God is even now leaning towards us with love and mercy and justice and healing. The promise that God's saving, reconciling, liberating power is available for all people, in all places, at all times. This is the message we're called to proclaim and enact as Christians. But let's face it, the calling is not an easy one. The universality of God's love and compassion is easy to profess in the abstract, but in real life, in our actual everyday circumstances, when God's generosity chafes against our own fears and prejudices and suspicions and doubts, as soon as the rubber hits the road, the calling becomes much, much harder, so much harder that we find ourselves hoarding the good news instead of giving it away. Perhaps this week's gospel story, disturbing disturbing as it is, will offer us some comfort. As it turns out, even Jesus, the Son of God, struggled with this radical calling. Even Jesus had to grow his way into a comprehensive, all-inclusive understanding of God's generosity. If this shocks you, then maybe you grew up as I did with perfect Jesus. Perfect Jesus was technically human, but his incarnation fell several steps short of actual humanness. He never messed up, never doubted, never backtracked, and never had to say he was sorry. He always had perfect reasons for saying the things he said and doing the things he did. So if he happened, for example, to speak with harshness rather than compassion, if he behaved in ways that were ethnocentric and rude, If he called a hurting, pleading woman a dog, well, he had perfect reasons for doing so. The problem with perfect Jesus, of course, is that he doesn't exist. The Jesus who appears in the Gospels is not half incarnate. He is as fully human as he is fully God, which is to say he struggles, he snaps, he discovers, he grows, he falters, he learns, he fears, and he overcomes. He is real and he's approachable, and he's authentically one of us. The good news is not that we serve a shiny, inaccessible deity who floats 20 feet above the ground. It is that Jesus shows us, in real time, in the flesh, what it means to grow as a child of God. He embodies what it looks like to stretch into a deeper, 
truer and fuller comprehension of God's good news. In the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman, the Son of God himself must face his own blind spots, his own rudeness, his own prejudice, and allow himself to be open to the full, glorious, and and uncomfortable implications of the gospel. As Matthew describes the scene, Jesus and his disciples are far from home in the region of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, they are in Gentile country, foreign country, other country. As Jesus and his friends go about their business, a Canaanite woman approaches them and starts shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. Anyone needing to uphold a perfect Jesus has to perform some serious theological gymnastics to justify what happens next, because it is both baffling and heartbreaking. Jesus definitely hears the woman's cry, but he doesn't answer her at all. He ignores her. The woman, however, is tenacious. She loves her daughter, she needs help, and she's not afraid to make a scene. She keeps shouting until the disciples ask Jesus to please send her away for being such a nuisance. Finally, Jesus looks at her and explains, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Still, the woman is undeterred. She falls to her knees and says, Lord, help me. Jesus doesn't help. Instead, he answers her with words that cut no matter how hard we try to soften them. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Are there ways around the awfulness of this moment? Maybe. Maybe Jesus is tired and wants a break from the relentless demands of ministry. Maybe he's fed up with people begging him for gifts and favors. Maybe he's simply describing the reality of his mission, the healing he offers for the children of Israel first. Maybe his ethnic slur is just a test, a deliberate provocation to prove the woman's devotion. These are all possibilities, but I don't think they do justice to the power of this story. What makes sense to me is that the Jesus we encounter in this moment is fully human, a product of his time and place, shaped as we all are by the conscious and unconscious biases, prejudices, and entitlements of his culture. Moreover, he is God incarnate, a holy son, still working out the scope and meaning of the divine vocation his father has given him. He knows he's meant to share the good news. But he has not yet learned to ask if the good news is really and truly good news for everyone. He hasn't yet considered who it leaves out. Even Jesus has to learn how radically good the good news is. So the Canaanite woman schools him. Turning his slur right back at the man who insults her, she replies, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It's a brilliant response, not least because it cuts to the very heart of Jesus' boundary-breaking, taboo-busting, division-destroying ministry of table fellowship. After all, he's the Messiah who eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's the rabbi who breaks bread with sinners. His disciples are the ones who earn the Pharisees' contempt for eating with unwashed hands. The table is precisely where Jesus shows the world who God is. And so the table is precisely where the outsider, the Gentile, the outcast, the other, calls Jesus out, as if to say, Lord, where's my good news? Where's my place at the table? When will your goodness be good enough for me and for my daughter? 
Whenever I imagine this scene in my mind, I hear at least a full moment of stunned silence in the wake of the Canaanite woman's words. I imagine the implications of her words ricocheting through Jesus' mind and heart. If you are who you say you are, how can you be content while anyone goes hungry in the vicinity of your table? The good news is here somewhere, latent and waiting. I know it's here. You already have it. Now, let it come to fruition. Look harder. Push further. See better. Believe that there's enough good news to go around. Expand the table. Dissolve the boundaries. Preach your good news to me. Here's the best part of letting perfect Jesus go and letting real Jesus win our hearts instead. Real Jesus accepts the instruction of the woman who challenges him. He allows her, the ethnic, religious, and gendered other, to school him in his own gospel, to deconstruct his bias and entitlement, to break the barrier of his prejudice and widen the circle of his compassion. The Jesus, who never loses a verbal contest with anyone else in scripture, sits back in amazement and concedes the argument to an audacious female foreigner. Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter is healed instantly. Jesus changes. He allows a perspective foreign to his own to move him from an attitude of narrow-mindedness to an attitude of inclusion. He allows himself to be humbled, rearranged, and remade. Robert Brown Taylor describes the moment this way, you can almost hear the huge wheel of history turning as Jesus comes to a new understanding of who he is and what he has been called to do. The Canaanite, woman, the Canaanite woman's faith and persistence teach him that God's purpose for him is bigger than he had imagined, that there is enough of him to go around. What would it be like to follow in the footsteps of a Jesus who listens to the urgent challenge of the other? who humbles himself long enough to learn what only a vulnerable outsider can teach? What would it be like to stop limiting who we will be for other people and who we will let them be for us? What would it be like to insist on good news for people who don't look, speak, behave, or worship like we do? Right now, we are living through times so fraught and so tenuous, everything depends on exactly how good the good news really is. It's not good enough if it's good just for me or for the people who look and think like me or for the people I already happen to like and love. Is it good news yet for those dying of COVID? Is it good news yet for the starving and the incarcerated and the unemployed and the homeless? Is it good news yet for the people across the border? Is it good news yet for the people you've been conditioned all your life to ignore? If the answer is no, then we have work to do. Remember, Jesus himself has gone ahead of us, widening the gate and throwing open the doors to welcome the voice of the despised foreigner. He has modeled a kind of listening and learning that should bring us to our knees. He has shown us that compassion can be cultivated. We can grow into greater and more inclusive love. He has left us with a bottom line we ignore at our peril. If it's not good news for everyone, then it's not good enough yet period. Proclaim that. For books this week, Dan reviews Learning from Henry Nowen and Vincent Van Gogh, A Portrait of the Compassionate Life by Carol A. Berry. 
After growing up in Holland and Switzerland, in 1974, the artist and educator Carol Berry emigrated to the United States. In the fall of 1976, when her husband Steve matriculated at Yale Divinity School and became the teaching assistant for Henry Nowen, Carol audited two classes with Nowen. One was called Compassion, and the other, The Compassion of Vincent van Gogh. After Nowen died in 1996, Sue Mosteler, his spiritual director and literary executor, asked Barry to write this book that is based upon the previously unpublished lecture material. This book, she writes, is about Henri's insights into Vincent's life from those two courses. Barry has lived, breathed, contemplated, and studied these two Dutch masters for over 40 years. She has read the famous 900 letters between Vincent and his brother Theo. She includes and elucidates 35 paintings that are included in the book. She has taught this material in workshops and retreats around the country. She tells her own stories about life as a pastor's wife in parishes in rural Vermont and urban New York and Los Angeles. This is, in fact, her second book on the subject, after Vincent van Gogh, His Spiritual Vision in Life and Art. One of the best things about this book is how she disabuses us of the popular caricature that Van Gogh was merely an eccentric artist plagued by madness, alcohol abuse, homelessness, prostitutes, and suicide at the age of 37. The link between Nowen and Van Gogh is obvious. Based upon their own life stories, both men invite us to embrace our own personal experiences of brokenness and to enter into the suffering of others, that we might live as people of compassion. Barry organizes her book into three movements, solidarity, consolation, and comfort. And so Mosteler has it right when she says that this little gem of a book has the perfect subtitle. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Gilded Age. Perhaps there's some bitter consolation in this two-hour PBS documentary to the effect that our economic disparities in wealth and income today are not new, that they have a disturbing precedent. This fascinating economic history considers what we now call the Gilded Age of the last three decades of the 19th century, which was a period of rapid growth, immigration, urbanization, and industrialization. Gilded suggests a patina or exterior covering that masks something ugly or even rotten underneath. We are introduced to the mind-boggling concentration of personal wealth, extravagant consumption, and political power of the Carnegies, Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, and especially J.P. Morgan. The expanding economy required the working class for the factories and farms. These people worked long hours with little to no support or protection, and thus the rise of the labor unions, boycotts, strikes, left-wing political parties, the first-ever march on Washington, and Henry George's 500-page self-published bestseller, Progress and Poverty, an inquiry into the cause of industrial depressions, an increase of want with increase of wealth, the remedy which argued that the cause of poverty was not God's will or bad character, but a faulty economic system. And so the film ends with a question that is still with us. What is the role of the federal government in its relationships with big business and ordinary citizens? And lastly, for poetry this week, The Place Where We Are Right by Yehuda Amakai. From the place where we are right... Flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. 
and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 16th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.